0: Lesson 8 starts on page 57, but we're actually going to begin on page 58. And today we need to finish the last two. There are actually nine lessons in this series, but we need to finish eight and nine today. So we'll have to give somewhat short shrift to those. But that's because next week is, uh, next week is communion and uh, ordinance Sunday baptism, which I'll explain in a bit. So we need to end this series uh, today. We'll try to cover those two lessons, but we'll do that after I remind you about some things that are coming up. Today is the final Sunday to participate in our ministry center fund. So this is the last time you'll have to hear me talk about this, but for the last five Sundays, including this one now, uh, we have had a campaign for every family in our church, if possible, to participate in whatever way you are able and uh, that's between you and God but we're asking each family in our church to participate to whatever degree and to the greatest degree that you're able in our ministry center fund by now most of you know what that is but we are looking to acquire a building that we call a ministry center most people would call it a church but we call the people the church and we call that place uh, a center where ministry takes occurs so we're looking to acquire a building where we can carry out ministry before that, we need to come up with a sizable uh, amount of money uh, in a fairly short period of time. This five weeks. And I, on purpose, have not asked the few fellows who count our money every week and who have been receiving the commitment cards for that, I've not asked them how that's going or any of that. So I actually have no idea as I speak to you right now. Uh, I'll find out uh, this afternoon or early this week. And then two weeks from today, at our Servant Seminar, which is uh, 4.30 in the afternoon to 8 o'clock at uh, the Westfield Activities. Uh... <laughs> so the Ministry Center Fund concludes today. And if you haven't had an opportunity to participate, then uh, we encourage you to do that if you, uh, if you can to whatever extent you can. And that's with the cards that have been inserted in your program. So take one of those. And as a reminder, when you leave today, I, I'm told there will be a table set up. Just as a last chance saloon kind of thing, last chance reminder uh, to, to participate. One of our church members actually recommended we do that because he had said, You know, I've known for several weeks what it is I'm going to commit, but I just keep forgetting to do it. So if you fit into that category, that's what that's for. But then after uh, this hour is done, then that will be done. We will see uh, where that puts us in terms of financial position, and then we'll go from there. And then we don't worry about it. And I, keep saying that, and I mean that for myself, and I mean that for you. We'll see where the Lord puts us with regard to the funds that have been committed, and then uh, see if that allows us to move forward or not, okay? So participate uh, before you leave today, if you're so inclined, and if you haven't already. And then uh, just uh, general announcements, this Wednesday we have our midweek program at Patrick Henry as, as every Wednesday, 7 o'clock, so it's not here, it's at Patrick Henry, which is about a mile from here on Hall Road. This Thursday, ladies, is the monthly ladies' night out. It's going to be at Pottery Creations in uh, Wyandotte. You can see the paragraph about that in the, in the program. Next Sunday is devoted to the observance of the two ordinances that Christ gave to his church, those of communion and baptism. So this is the way it'll be when you come in next week. We will meet in the auditorium, not in this room, but in the auditorium at 930, which is behind here, and we will have the entirety of our service devoted to the observance of the Lord's table. And then when that is finished, you'll come back in here, and this uh, room will be set up for a celebration dinner that will follow the baptism. You'll come in here, get some instructions about where the baptism is and what's going to take place. And then we'll all go down to the pool area where we have the the baptism. And when that's finished, come back here, and then we'll have the celebration dinner. So those are always a great time, and we encourage you to be here next week. If it's at all possible, I encourage you to stay for the entire morning and early afternoon. We'll be done by about 1 o'clock with the meal and everything, so it'll still be early afternoon. Uh, For the meal, the church provides the main dish, but... Uh, We ask you to participate with the side dishes, and we have a sign-up for that, and it's categorized with the different sides that we need. Yesterday, or last week, we passed that around. We got almost all of the slots filled, but that's the key word, almost. There are still a few, just a few, that are not, and that sheet is over at the Information Center. So if you didn't uh, fill your name in last week and you think you can help us, then see that sheet and put your name on it before you leave today. Uh, So that'll be Ordinance Sunday next week. Then two weeks from today, we will start our four-week Newcomers Orientation. So those of you that are new to the church and you are looking for where God would have you to serve, we provide this really for you. Uh, It is informational to tell you about our church, where we've come from, what we believe, what we hope to accomplish in the future. I give you a notebook of material, I think it's 67 pages, that uh, most of it's appendix and reference material, but we go through a bunch of stuff that's very important for you to understand about us and about our distinctives and why we do things the way we do, and it affords you an opportunity to ask any questions you might have as well in in a small setting. So I'll be teaching that starting two weeks from today for four Sundays in a row. If you're new and you're thinking about where the Lord would have you to serve, then I definitely encourage you to participate in that. We always say, and we really mean, that it is for information only. There's no pressure at the end of it. We don't come after you and say, well, you took it. What do you want to do? Uh, I tell you on the last session that the ball is in your court. Now, these are the things that you need to, need to do, uh, and then uh, you respond uh, as you wish or, or not. So it's for information only for those four weeks starting two weeks from today, April the 1st. Last announcement is on Easter, April the 8th, our service times are reversed. So we'll have our educational hour during the 9.30 time, and then at 11 o'clock, we will have our worship service on, on Easter. So just uh, note, note that. All right. Today's our final session in our series, The Gospel-Centered Life. Sometimes people are inspired by what they see. So when I was a, a kid, I used to... Well, I, I was a sports junkie then. I'm not quite a junkie now, but I definitely was when I was a kid. So I watched sports on TV and participated in every sport when I was a kid as well. So Little League and, uh, and, and hockey and football and basketball and all of that, depending on what season it was. And so I'd watch sports on TV, and every time it came around to, say, football season, and I watch a, I'm watching a football game for the first time in the fall, I remember as a kid having this irresistible urge to throw a football. So I'm watching people do this, and I want to do it. And so I break out the football, and I go get some friends, and we start throwing the football around. Same thing for basketball, same thing for hockey, same thing for baseball. happened every one of those different uh, sports seasons. My favorite of all of those was uh, hockey. And yesterday we had our ice skating event, and um, Pastor Matt comes by me, and he says... uh, Hey, does it feel good to feel good to be out here? I said no. <laughs> My feet are killing me. But I, I remember feeling those even just skating around. Now it's once a year at our ice skating event. I get to skate around, and uh, I, but you still there are all these good memories that come back, which made me want to check somebody into the boards. <laughs> I told Pastor Matt I've, I've, several times I've dropped the gloves and realized I don't have any gloves on to fight somebody. <laughs> But often people are inspired by what it, is they, what it is they see. People should be inspired by what they see in Christians. And it's a very convicting thing that too often that's not the case. That people look at Christians, they look at groups of Christians, a church, And they're not inspired by that. They're not attracted by that. Now, does the Bible actually say that people ought to be able to look and see things that are distinctive about Christians and groups of Christians and be inspired by that? And the answer to that is absolutely yes. In fact, in Matthew chapter 5, if you don't have your Bible, you can just listen as I read, but Matthew 5, here's what Jesus says. in the famous Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5. He says, You, verse 13, are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled by men. Now, many of you have heard messages about the properties of salt that preserve but they also induce thirst as well. Salt induces thirst. And this is the idea that we are a preservative, yes, in the way Christians behave for society, but we also should have an attractiveness about what we do that creates a thirstiness on the part of people who see it. You are collectively the salt of the earth, says Jesus. But then he goes on to say, you are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden, neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl, instead they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men, that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. And I ask you, friend, as I ask myself, how often do we see people witness the behavior, the lives of Christians? and say, they've got something I don't. They've got something I need. And it results in people being attracted to to Christ. And the answer for me in my own life, in my own observation in the Christian life, now I'll be 50 next week. Thank you for your congratulations. Happy birthday to me. But it's been long enough now that I've seen a pretty good swath of life in general and the Christian life in particular. And it just doesn't happen that often, does it? What is it that we have to offer that ought to be attractive to people? I mean, friends, do you really believe this? Do I really believe this? Do we believe that the gospel is powerful? The Bible says it is. That the gospel is the power of God. Romans 1.16, the word translated power, Greek word dunamis, we get dynamite. The gospel is powerful. And not only is the gospel message powerful, but the implications of the gospel are powerful, are to be powerful in the lives of those who witness its consequences in those who claim to be its adherents. If we say we've embraced the gospel, then there ought to be a distinction then about us that people look at and see and say, I need that. Now, I say it's powerful, and people ought to say, I need that. I'm not talking about just generating excitement. This is something that our churches, I think, are mistaking. You know, the gospel needs to have this attractiveness, so let's do things to just get people geeked. There are lots of ways to do that. We ought to be geeked, but we ought to be geeked about the gospel and about its implications in our lives and then in turn what God is going to do through us in the lives of of others. So how does that happen? How is that difference to be seen? What I'm convinced the Bible teaches is what people are supposed to see is a radically different set of values that have been altered by Christ and that are so stark that people cannot help but notice. And that radical difference is seen in, and here's the key word, is seen in relationship. Relationship between people and relationship of people to things. So let me say it again. That radical shift in values is to be seen in relationship. It's to be seen in relationships between people, but it's also to be seen in the relationship of Christian people to stuff, to things. So in the way we interact with one another, there should be a radical difference. And in the way we interact with stuff, material, things, there should be a radical difference. If those two things were true of the lives of most Christians, the light Jesus speaks about, the saltiness Jesus speaks about, would be seen. Now, how does that look in our relationships, which is what I want to focus on? These two, these two lessons focus on that. So we'll focus on the implications of the gospel, this radical shift in our values as it's seen in our relationships to one another. Well, how does that look? Well, it looks at root radical. That's what radical means, at root. Completely different than the way relationships look for those outside of Christ. So let's just think for a minute about the common way to approach relationships. If you're in any relationship whatsoever, marriage relationship, work relationship, parent-child, it doesn't matter, child-to-child, in any relationship, there is always wrong that's going to be done to you. In some relationship, at some time, you have been wronged, correct? So the world says, don't get mad, (laughs) get what? And what does the church say? Yeah, I'm good with that. You have husbands and wives who dwell together, use my words carefully, dwell, not really live, dwell together, spending years getting even, because they're ticked about what you did or what you failed to do. Spend years dwelling together, getting even. Now, nobody would ever say that, we're Christians. (laughs) Nobody ever say that day after day I am seething with anger and I get even by the cold shoulder and the smart aleck comments and the stuff that uh, I don't do that I otherwise would do and so on. Nobody ever admits that. It just happens day in and day out. Other people look at that, what do they sing? Salt? Light? And all the while... This is what many of us are worried about. You know, I don't want want to be like the world. I don't want our church to be like the world. Well, I don't want our church to be like the world either. But let's make sure we define world properly the way the Bible does. The way the Bible defines the world is a completely different set of values, a complete different set of value systems to which we give our allegiance. So when we say, I don't want to be like the world, and I'm glad I'm not like worldlings, what we mean is, I'm not engaged in all of the obvious behavior, harmful behavior they're engaged in. I don't want our church to be like the world, which means I want our church to look a certain way, be a certain way. And all the while, we can be just as worldly as anybody else. In our attitudes, In our pride, in our unwillingness to forgive, I am asking you, friends, am I right that pride and gossip and unwillingness to forgive in our relationships, that is worldliness, and that is worldliness in a most incipient, heinous form. Because you can look Christian the whole time and be as worldly as you can be. and I'm personally convinced that this is one of the reasons that although what people see should inspire them, what they see in us as Christians very often does not. Because it ain't much different in our relationships to each other. Now page 57, 58 in your book is about how the gospel issues forth in forgiveness. We're going to look at, I'm going to highlight some paragraphs for you and give some explanation about these. I encourage you to read the whole thing on your own, but take a look at page 58. Down at the bottom, last paragraph, says this with regard to this radical, radically different value that issues forth in forgiveness in our relationships with one another that should be Christianity. Here's what it says. Our forgiveness of others is intended to mirror the forgiveness God has given us. We are to take the initiative. So if you read the couple pages prior to that, which I encourage you to do later, you'll see that we're told, rightly, that God takes the initiative in our forgiveness. That God approaches us. And so as we mirror now the forgiveness we've been given by God in our relationships with others, we in turn take the initiative. Jesus says this, in Matthew 5. By the way, the same Matthew 5 from which I read just a minute ago. Light, salt, here's what he says later in that chapter. If you're offering your gift at the altar, and there you remember your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Now, I, I, I'm not sure what, how we're reading that. As Christians, I just know we ain't doing it very much. We come to church week after week and we're not reconciled to our brother and we're not initiating reconciliation. And that's in direct disobedience to what Jesus says here. Now, maybe one way we're reading it is you know, first go and be reconciled to your brother. That means like somebody in the church. It doesn't mean my kid, it doesn't mean my spouse. When in fact, Jesus is saying, you got a problem with anybody. <laughs> then you take the initiative in being reconciled with them. Now, I'm going to get off of this because otherwise I'll blow a cork. But I, can you sense, dear friend, that I am burdened? I am burdened for our relationships. In our homes. And, and we come together. And we sing amazing grace. But within the four walls of our house, it's not so amazing. And who's supposed to be attracted to that? And if you have kids, they know how amazing that grace is. So we take the initiative, says Jesus. Then at the middle half of that paragraph were to offer forgiveness and open a door for reconciliation. But reconciliation is always contingent upon the other person's repentance. Now let me explain. This is where people misunderstand sometimes. See, forgiveness is not not conditional. If somebody wants forgiveness, we have an obligation as Christians to grant forgiveness. But we can't be fully reconciled unless some other things happen. So there's forgiveness and there's reconciliation. I mean, here's some examples. If a thief, if I steal from you, I can ask you to forgive me, and you can grant that forgiveness. But in order for us to be reconciled, there may be some restitution that has to take place, some repentance that takes place. So there's forgiveness and there's repentance and restitution. And what people sometimes do is they say, I'm not going to forgive you unless I have a guarantee that you're going to repent. But here's the thing, you can't control that, can you? And so this forgiveness that you're willing to grant, now hear it, quite apart from whether, of knowing the future and what this person is willing to do. This forgiveness that you are willing to grant without conditions is a reflection on how you understand the forgiveness that you've been given by God. The forgiveness that we must be willing to grant without conditions is a reflection on our understanding of how we have been forgiven by God. Now they go on to to say this on page 59 first full paragraph on page 59, what this means is that our work is not done once we've given, forgiven someone. Our heart's desire is not simply to forgive the offense, but ultimately see the person reconciled to God and to us. We want to see sin's power over this person destroyed, but we cannot make this happen. Pray for it, long for it, welcome it. Now where do I get the power to do this? Well, we'll see in the middle of page 59. It's, of course, from the gospel. But why don't we want to do this? Why do we want to withhold forgiveness, maintain an attitude of hostility toward this person until we make sure that they do what we want? Why do we do that? One big reason is we think they don't deserve the very forgiveness that we've been given. You see this in the Bible, right? Jonah, you all remember Jonah? God tells Jonah, go and preach to the Ninevites. When I was a kid, you know, when I heard the story of Jonah not wanting to go to preach to the Ninevites, the way it was described to me in Sunday school was the Ninevites were vicious people. Jonah was scared. I'm thinking I'd be scared too. Jonah went in the opposite direction. I'm thinking I'd be doing that. And because he disobeyed God, he got swallowed by a great fish. So I thought, you know obey God or get swallowed by a great fish. That was his punishment, getting swallowed by a great fish. That's what I thought. And then I read Jonah, four chapters of Jonah. And actually what happened was, yes, Jonah didn't want to go. We'll see in a minute and remind you why he didn't want to go. But his being swallowed by that fish was not a punishment. God saved his life by having him in the belly of that fish. The Bible tells us that he was thrown overboard, remember? Remember? He tells the story and prays to God. I was going down for the third time. I was ready to die. And he's thanking God for saving him with this great fish. So those three nights in the belly of that fish were the best thing that ever happened to him. Then you get to chapter 4. Jonah's gone to, okay, fine. You got my attention. I go and preach to them. They repent. And now chapter 4, I, Jonah, am not happy about this. I am not happy that these people repented. It's not our people? Does anyone know? It's not our people? So we can't tell them to stop? No, it's good. It's okay. So you come to chapter 4. Jonah has preached to them. They have repented. Chapter 4, Jonah is not happy about this. God speaks to Jonah. And here's what Jonah says to him in chapter 4. Jonah says to God, This is why I didn't want to go to Nineveh. He says nothing about them being vicious people and all that. Not because I was afraid of them. Here's what I was afraid of. I was afraid you 'd be merciful, and you 'd forgive them, and sure enough, I was right, there you go, being all merciful again, to these Ninevites who don't deserve it. And God teaches him a lesson in chapter four, in effect telling Jonah, they deserve it every bit as much as you deserve, it. which means they don't and you don't, but I give it my mercy. But we, as Christians, we're supposed to have this radically different approach, right? But we harbor this idea that somehow I merit, I deserve God's forgiveness, and I'm going to withhold it from people that I don't think deserve it. My husband, my wife, that coworker. Page 59. Middle of the page. When we say, I just can't forgive that person for what he did to me we're essentially saying that person's sin is greater than mine. Next paragraph, but when we embrace a gospel perspective on our own sin, we recognize that the sin that God has forgiven on our behalf is greater than any sin that has been committed against us. Matthew 25, excuse me, Matthew 18, verse 25, is where Jesus gives that famous parable of the fellow who was hauled into debtor's court. He owed millions of dollars. Begged for forgiveness. He was forgiven. Debt was canceled. He's released. He goes out and finds a guy who owes him a relative few dollars. Grabs him by the throat, chokes him, and says, pay me everything you owe me. And Jesus goes on to say, that unmerciful servant will be cast out of my presence. You see the danger here, Friends. I'm just going to say this and I'll move on. I'm I'm no one's judge. But my fear is that the reason we don't act like Christians, that we don't act distinctive in our relationships with one another, the reason we don't act like Christians would act is because some of us aren't Christians. I'm just being straight. The reason there's not this radical difference in the way we go about it is because we have never experienced the forgiveness from God the Father and therefore have no basis for issuing the forgiveness that only His radical change of us can make. And so I ask you, I I beg of you, and myself, all of us, friends, let's look at our relationships with one another with whom do you have aught? and don't come to church next week have you ever heard a pastor say that but you know Jesus says that and so I'll just say what he says don't come and offer your gift don't come and worship without seeking to take the initiative to reconciliation now you start taking that seriously I start taking that seriously And people start seeing that happen in your life, in your home, in your workplace. Now you're the salt of the earth. Now you're starting to be the light of the world because that's something different, ain't it? That doesn't happen everywhere. All right, take a look at the last lesson in the time we have left, which is related. It's about conflict, it's on page 65. And this lesson on how the gospel affects the way we deal with conflict says that there are two broad categories in the way that people deal with conflict. On page 65, they give the first. Middle of the page, third paragraph says this Some people are attackers. I'm an attacker. This is the way I deal with conflict. Uh, There's an issue, there's a disagreement. I'm a prosecutor. Really, why do you say that? What proof do you have of that? You know, by the time I am done with you, I mean, this is, this is my, one, it's my personality. It's my then personality distorted by my sin. You put it together, it's not a pretty picture. So when conflict occurs, my first approach is, is that, what you see described on page 65. That would be me. By God's grace, I have to deal with it all the time conflict occurs all the time at various levels and various relationships and catch myself saying who am i to be god's prosecutor but that's my that's my natural approach attack here's another approach top of page 66 on the one hand there are those who attack and on the other hand there are those who withdraw People with this tendency find themselves on the defensive. They tend to avoid or ignore conflict. When pressed into an argument, they respond in sullen silence or apathetic passivity. Then it gives some characteristics, further characteristics of that kind of person. So two broad categories. The person who attacks, the person who withdraws. You fit into, in all likelihood, one of those two broad categories. Attack, withdraw. You may have some mixture of the two, but those are two ways to think about it. Very often, God, in his infinite wisdom, has a husband and a wife, one of each. An attacker and a withdrawer. Kim's a withdrawer. I'm an attacker. We've had to work this out over 27 years. I'm just being real, keeping it real. So, what, how are we to handle this? How does the gospel help us handle conflict, especially when? We're in these two different kinds of categories very often. Middle of page 66. How do we move toward resolving conflict in a biblical manner? Let's learn from the disagreement between Paul and Peter in Galatians 2. Now, the following page and a half explain this dispute that occurred between two leaders in the early church, Paul and Peter. And as you'll read there, what we're told rightly is this. That Peter had fallen into a situation where he was in danger of compromising the gospel because of some of the impressions that he was giving by his actions. And this came to Paul's attention. It needed to be dealt with, and so Paul deals with it. And Galatians chapter 2 on page 67, Galatians 2 verses 11 through 14 give us the account of how Paul handled it. Now, I encourage you to read that page and a half on your own, but the bottom of page 67 tells us this. Here's what Paul did. First, he approached Peter publicly. He didn't avoid Peter. He didn't gossip about him. He didn't try to bully him. He confronted him, going directly to the person with whom he had the conflict. In this case, the confrontation was public. That isn't always necessary. In fact, in most cases, it's not necessary. This was public. They were public leaders, so he dealt with it accordingly. But he went directly to the source of of the conflict. Paul made sure the confrontation fit the situation. So that's first. He approached Peter and he approached him directly. Now how does that shake out in our approach toward confrontation? Here's one way it shakes out. You have a problem with somebody. I have a problem with somebody. And instead of going to that person first and only if it's not public, first and only. Just between the two of you, Jesus says in Matthew 18 and verse 15. Instead of doing that, we go to other people. Am I right? The Bible calls that gossip. And let me just say, those other people can be your in-laws. And by the way, I'm not talking... This is not biographical or autobiographical. (laughs) I just thought of that. Boy, I've given a bunch of illustrations from my life here, and then I say, and you know, don't go telling your in-laws all this stuff. My in-laws are back here. And Kim has been marvelous about that over the years. I have seen this, where one or the other or both will go tell their parents what the other party's doing. Or they go tell their friends. They tell their friends at church. Everybody at church knows so-and-so has a problem. That these guys are having problems. How do I know this? People come and say, what's the problem with these guys? How did you know these guys had a problem? Because so-and-so told me. Everybody knows they do. So Paul went directly to the person with whom he had the conflict. Now, Jesus teaches in Matthew 18, 15 through 20, that it may be the case that you will have to get others involved. But first, just between the two of you, if he hears you, you've won your brother. If not, you take two or three others. That's what Jesus says in Matthew 18. So that every word might be established in the presence of two or three witnesses. So you go, Paul went directly to the individual with whom he had the conflict. Top of page 68. The second thing Paul did was he was motivated, not by self-defense or self-interest, but the defense of the gospel. So what's at stake here? You know, is this offense because my psyche is so fragile and so valuable that any potential or real offense against it must be dealt with and dealt with now and dealt with in the most harsh and summary manner? That's what most of us think. And the truth of the matter is that there are lots of things that we could overlook for the sake of the gospel. Doesn't 1 Corinthians 6 teach this? Remember about Christians going to court against one another? And Paul says, it would be better for you rather than dragging your laundry out before the world to see and thus not be the light and the salt. Rather than doing that, it would be better for you to take the wrong. There are times when we can absorb a wrong, take a wrong, because Christ has done that for us. So it's not motivated by me and what's happening to me, but rather something much larger, a defense of the gospel in this case, or a defense of God's glory. This person is not behaving in a way that brings glory to God. He or she is a professing Christian. Therefore, I'm willing to do the hard thing of confronting them so that they get this right more for the sake of the gospel and God's glory than for my own benefit. And then thirdly, Paul presented the issue plainly and then invited a response from Peter. He presented the issue. Notice, the issue, the issue. Not you always. And while I'm at it, I've got another thousand things I want to deal with. He dealt with the issue. Now, see, the reason he doesn't have a thousand things to deal with is because if you make this the habit, if you deal with stuff when it happens, then the stuff doesn't build up. And so you've heard me say before, you know, the guy's counseling a couple, and the husband says to the counselor, you know, we're arguing, and then all of a sudden she goes historical on me. And he goes, you mean hysterical? No, <laughs> historical. She brought up everything I had ever done. Despite the fact that 1 Corinthians 13 says this, love keeps, you guys remember this? Keeps no record of wrongs. And some of us have harbored every last slight. We can catalog them to a T because we've been unwilling to deal with them. He presented the issue plainly and then invited a response from Peter. Now, last and importantly, On the next page, page 69, there's a helpful chart, and the next couple of pages give a helpful exercise to go through, and I encourage each of us, myself included, each of us to go through this exercise of looking at how it is that we handle conflict. Are we an attacker or are we a withdrawer? You see those first two columns there. And then in contrast to the attacking, withdrawing, what does the gospel say to do? And then on the left column it says what is my heart what does my heart have going on if I'm an attacker or withdrawer? What's the source of of power that I'm drawing on if I'm an attacker or withdrawer? What am I committed to? What direction am I headed? What am I feeling? What's my objective in this? My goals? And then what is the ultimate result? Now how can you play that out? Look at page 70. Page 70 gives you bottom of page 70 and 71, questions to ask yourself, to help yourself identify. I'm an attacker, I'm a withdrawer. What is going on with me so that I can begin to handle this in a gospel-centered, Christ-centered way? We're done in just a couple minutes. What a beautiful thing it would be if this week, this whole room of people, myself included, were to say, I care enough about the reputation of Jesus Christ and His gospel that I'm willing to go through this exercise. And I'm willing to take action with those with whom I am in conflict this week for the sake of the gospel. And as that starts to happen, if the person with whom you've been at odds, perhaps for years, doesn't die of a heart attack, and you're able to continue pursuing that relationship in this gospel-centered way. People begin to take notice. If you've got kids, they begin to take notice. And they go, what happened to them? And you're able to say, Jesus did this. The gospel did this. What an opportunity to be salt and light now. To say Christ has made this difference. And so, friend, I ask you to, to ask God to grant you, to grant each of us that motivation for His glory, for the sake of His gospel. That we would show something radically different in our relationships. That we would be willing to do the hard thing of examining our own heart motivations, what kind of approach we take to conflict, attacking or withdrawing, seeing what all's going on there. And then being willing to put into action what the Lord Jesus tells us to do. And what a beautiful thing. What a beautiful thing if Community Baptist Church could be known in our community as a place where people can look and they can see the tangible difference that Christ and the gospel has made in the lives of those people. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for allowing us these weeks together to go through this series centered upon the beauty of the gospel. Thank you for the Lord Jesus who is central to the gospel. Christ is the gospel. Apart from him, there is no good news. And so we thank you for the good news that we have, that we can have, and if we've come to you through Jesus, we do have a relationship with the God who made us that will last forever come what may. Lord, we fail, we sin, I fail, I sin. Oh, too many times for me to recount. In showing forth the beauty of this new relationship, in the horizontal relationships you've given me with others, oh Lord, forgive me and forgive us. As we take our natural bent, our natural personalities, and we distort the way we should behave toward one another by our sin. And so some of us attack and others of us withdraw. And we do everything except what you tell us to do. Our relationships become messy, they become ugly. Anything but a light and salt. Oh Lord, make us light and salt in this community. But first make us light and salt in our own homes. And then in our own church. And then to our community and the regions beyond. Lord, you've begun your work in each of us individually. Thank you for this series, helping to that end. Continue your work in me. Continue your work in us. Go with us this week and help us to have the courage, the motivation, the desire that only you can give to put these things into practice for your glory and for the sake of the gospel.